This is The Guardian. Just a warning before we start, this episode contains some descriptions that might be distressing, especially for Aboriginal and Walpuri people. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. In late 2019, a Northern Territory police officer, Zachary Rolfe, shot Walpuri teenager Kumanjai Walker three times during an arrest that turned violent. Kumanjai died shortly afterwards, leaving behind a grieving family and community. Kumanjai was only 19 years old when he died at the police station of Yindamu after being shot three times by Zachary Rolfe. That is a fact that cannot be disputed. Sometimes I think about how he must have felt in his last moments. Was he scared? Terrified, I'd imagine. Was he in pain? In excruciating pain, I would think. And he was alone. In a rare move, Rolf was charged with murder, as well as two alternate charges, to which he pleaded not guilty. Guardian reporter Nino Bucci has been covering this historic trial in the Darwin Supreme Court and was present late last week when a jury found Rolf not guilty of all charges. A verdict that was welcomed by the police and Rolf's supporters. Today we've seen justice prevail. Uh, it was a travesty that uh, Constable Rolf was charged so quickly and without thorough investigation. We'll have more to say about that in the coming days. But not by the family of Kumanjai Walker. After five exhausting weeks, we have finally heard the jury's decided verdict. We are deeply saddened by the result and cannot put our grief into words. Many of us have travelled far to be here to represent our family, our community, and most importantly, Kumanjay, who could no longer represent himself. Today, the trial of Zachary Rolfe. It's Thursday, the 17th of March. Okay, so Nino, about five weeks ago, you flew to Darwin to report on the trial of a Northern Territory police officer, Zachary Rolfe. He was charged with the murder of 19-year-old Walpuri man, Kumanjai Walker. I'm wondering, as someone who has covered a lot of court cases before what you were thinking about this trial in the lead-up to it. Yeah, obviously it it seemed as if it was a really tragic case. We had the death of a young man in a remote Indigenous community. A police officer had been charged within four days of the death and really we then had everything delayed by the pandemic, by various sort of pre-trial legal arguments, and we were kind of building finally to getting to the bottom of what had happened there there was really this kind of anticipation and this desire almost to kind of get this aired, to get some sort of clarity about what had actually happened there. That kind of built to an atmosphere that was really sort of heavy and quite unlike any court case I've been in before. So because of COVID, the jury sat on either side of the courtroom there were 14 jurors to start with, which was the jury of 12 and then two reserve jurors. And interestingly, after the trial, uh, Kumjai Walker's family did raise some concerns about whether there were any Indigenous people on that jury. 
Can you break down those charges that Zachary Rolfe was given? He'd been charged with murdering Kumajai Walker. If a jury found him not guilty of that charge, then they had to consider whether he was guilty of manslaughter. And if he was found not guilty of that charge, he faced a further charge of engaging in a violent act causing death. He pleaded not guilty to all those charges, but if Rolf was found guilty of murder, he would be sentenced to at least 20 years in prison and potentially on some sort of post-custodial sentence for the rest of his life. And if he had have been you know, convicted, obviously it would have been the first time that a police officer had ever been convicted for murder in the relation to the death of an Aboriginal man in custody. So huge, huge stakes here. Right. So Nino, in broad strokes, can you just tell us a little bit about the people at the centre of this trial. And let's start with Zachary Rolfe. Who is he? Zachary Rolfe is now 30. He's still a constable in the NT police. He's kind of a short guy. He walks really, you know, in a a sort of upright way and you can tell he, you know, looks after himself physically. There was this possibility that he would be called to give evidence and it came to pass very much towards the end of the trial. He was the first defence witness and... That was when we really got a sense, I guess, of who he was, that he was born in Canberra in 1991, that he completed high school there. Uh, He then joined the army where he spent five years from 2010 as a soldier and completed tours overseas, including in Afghanistan. And then basically from 2015, he he came back to Canberra and he said he spent sort of a 10-month break doing odd jobs, but that during that time, he also spent four to five weeks training in the US state of Arkansas with a private provider called Trojan Securities International, where he said he completed various courses, including hostage rescue, ambush driving, and weapons familiarization to uh, upskill himself. And then in May 2016, he moved to Darwin to start his training with the NT police force. Right. And what about Kumanjai? Can you tell me a bit about him? Kumanjai Walker's a 19-year-old Woolpuri man. He's from Yendamu, an Aboriginal community of 600 to 800 people that's about 300 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs on Woolpuri land. There wasn't a lot that came out about him during the trial itself other than, I guess, the events that led to him being in Yendamu the night of the shooting. But in interviews, his family have described him as, you know, funny, quiet, somebody who is very dedicated to his family and also enjoyed, I guess, the traditional parts of of his life and living in Yendamu. So, Nina, what do we know for sure that's not contested about how this shooting happened? What we know for sure is that Kumanjai had been sentenced to spending a period of time at a residential alcohol rehabilitation program in Alice Springs. And on the 29th of October, he left that facility and removed an electronic monitoring bracelet. So we heard Kumajai escape that rehabilitation facility in Alice Springs because he wanted to attend a great uncle's funeral in Yendamu. So we heard evidence during the trial that that funeral had been moved a few times, but it was supposed to take place about a week after Kumajai escaped from the facility in Alice Springs. Mm. So we know on 6th of November there was an attempted arrest conducted by two local Yendamu police that Kumajai was able to escape because he threatened both those officers with an axe and ran out of a property into an area known as the Sacred Men's Business Area in Yendamu. After that, the local police were pretty cross, they were pretty upset. We heard that evidence in trial and 
they started negotiating with the family for Kumanjai to hand himself in. As soon as that funeral took place, he'd hand himself in after that. Mm. So eventually that funeral was rescheduled to November 9. And during this time, I guess, between when Kumanjai escaped from Alice Springs and the funeral itself, there'd been a series of break-ins in Yendamu that had prompted medical staff to leave the town. Local police suspected Walker was involved, but they didn't have any sort of clear evidence of that. So on 9 November, as part of all those issues that were going on in the Yendamu community, but also the fact that Kumanjai was now considered a high-risk arrest target, a request was made for extra police officers to be sent to Yendamu and five police officers, including Rolf, headed off from Alice Springs. Rolf and three of those officers were part of the immediate response team, which is a a specialist team within the NT police that receives more weapons and tactical training than general duties officers. So those five officers all left Alice Springs on the afternoon of 9 November for Yendamu. Right, so that brings us to the second attempted arrest and, and the shooting. What happened there? The funeral was finished at this point. Uh, Kumanjai was sitting outside a house known as 511 in Yendamu and Leanne Oldfield, who's Kumanjai's adopted mother, uh, told the court that she was sitting outside that house with Kumanjai looking at family photos of his cousins and an aunt in a swimming pool and was laughing and he then sort of got up from, from where they were sitting outside the house and walked inside. And she said basically as soon as that happened, she looked up and noticed that there were police coming through the gate of the property. Those police arrived at 7.20pm and what happened next is captured on body-worn camera footage which was played to the court. The Guardian has decided not to publish audio of this body-worn camera footage because it's quite distressing except for a few key moments that are central to understanding this case. So what that body cam footage showed was that a constable known as Adam Burl walked into the house first. Uh, Zachary Rolf was immediately behind him and pretty much as soon as they walk into that that house they see Walker coming towards them. Rolf takes him across the wall he works out that it's him and basically asks him to put his hands behind his back but he's not noticed that Kumajai's right hand is reaching into his pocket for a pair of scissors. Kumajai brings those scissors down sort of into a stabbing motion in Rolf's left shoulder it leaves like a three millimeter sort of puncture wound on top of that left shoulder and from this point, you know, and Rolf says this in his evidence, it all went very quickly. He moves away from, from Walker. He jabs him to the face after he gets stabbed. But from that point, when he moves away from Walker, Walker and Constable Burl start to struggle with each other and move to the opposite side of the wall from Rolf. And this is about the time where Rolf fires his first shot. Now, this shot itself is not subject to any charges. The prosecution accepts that it was fired when Rolf was acting in self-defence. At this point, Iberl and Walker fall. The prosecution said it was possible Iberl actually threw Walker down onto a mattress that's on the floor of the property. Now, the prosecutor says Iberl was this much larger man. He gave evidence himself about having extensive martial arts training and he's trying to basically control Walker at various times. They're, they're both moving all the time on the footage. Rolf's defence was that Iberl was not in control. But what we see is that he's sort of lying with his arm across Walker and they're both to the side, but there is a part of Iberl's body that is on top of Walker. What we cannot see is what Walker's right arm, which had been holding the scissors, is doing. 
Rolf then walks across the room. He puts his left hand on Ebel's lower back and he extends his right arm so that the barrel of the gun is within five centimetres of Walker and he pulls the trigger twice more. So that second bullet was fired 2.6 seconds after the first shot and the third one was fired basically immediately after another 0.6 of a second later. And a medical expert told the trial that it was the second bullet that badly damaged Kumajai Walker's spleen, his lung, his liver and a kidney. And it was those last two shots, those two shots that were fired when Iberl and Kumajai Walker were struggling on the mattress that were the subject to all these charges. Mm. And so moments after that happened, after Rolf shot Kumajai for the last time, Iberl is heard saying to Walker, you know, don't fuck around, I'll fucking smash you, mate. And Iberl gave it evidence at trial that Walker was struggling continuously throughout the encounter. But then shortly after he says that, Erbil goes on to say, Give me your arm, give me your arm. Did you fuck? To which Rolf responds, It's all good, he was stabbing me, he was stabbing me. It's all good, he was stabbing me, he was stabbing you. It's all good, he's got scissors here. He was stabbing me, he was stabbing you. So it sounds like Ebel in this moment is realising for the first time that Kumanjai has been shot. Yes, that was Ebel's evidence. That's what Rolf was saying was that Ebel was asking, did you shoot this guy? And, you know, Rolf's response was basically, yes, it's all good. He was stabbing me. He was stabbing you. Rolf said he said it in that way because he believed that Ebel was suffering what he described as auditory exclusion, that basically the adrenaline of the struggle had meant that he had not heard the shots being fired. So after the shots were fired, both the officers worked to handcuff Kumanjai Walker while he was pressed down onto that mattress. They're yelling at him to let go of the scissors. He's still sort of holding onto the scissors with that right hand as they're trying to put it in handcuffs. They take him outside into a police vehicle and from there he's taken to the Endemu police station. We heard evidence of the fact that he was given fairly good first aid treatment by the officers including Rolf, but that they basically had to take him to the police station rather than a medical facility because of the fact that those medical staff had evacuated Yendamu that morning. And so he's taken to the watch house in the police station, which was considered the most sterile part of the station while they did that first aid. Now, at this point, family was starting to gather outside the police station. They were trying to work out what had happened. They were trying to get in. But at 8.36, about an hour and 15 minutes after the shooting, uh, Kumanjai Walker was pronounced dead. So, Nino, can you just lay out for me broadly what were the main thrusts of the arguments that were deployed by the prosecution and the defence in this trial? Yeah, so Prosecutor Philip Strickland, SC, his main contention was that Rolf had no legal justification for firing the second and third shots, that given they were fired from point-blank range, Rolf intended either to kill or seriously harm Kumajai Walker. And he said that the prosecution case would not simply be about the events on the night of the shooting, though, but about the context in which those events occurred. Now, David Edwardson QC was the defence barrister for Rolf, and he argued that Rolf's actions were reasonable and justifiable in the context of the danger faced by Rolf and Constable Iberl. He said that Rolf was acting in self-defence and to defend the life of a Burl when he fired those second and third shots and that his police training had emphasised that edged weapon equals gun. Edwardson also argued that Kumajai Walker had a propensity for violence and had attacked Rolf in a dark and confined space 
and that Rolf didn't have the luxury of considering tactical options frame by frame. He also sort of said, and this was you know, obviously a direct reference to the body-worn camera footage that was shown extensively during the case, that Rolf could not press the pause button. Right, so the defence say that this was a spontaneous reaction of someone who felt that another police officer was in danger, but the prosecution argue, no, Rolf's actions at the time of the second and third shots were not justified, and they say his actions in the lead-up to this moment kind of back this up. Is that right, Nino? Yeah, that's fair to say. I think what they were hoping to do as a prosecution was illustrate why the context backed up their argument that what Rolf did was unreasonable in that 2.6 seconds. But ultimately, the whole trial still came down to what actually happened during the shooting itself. When Rolf walks across the room and fires that second shot into Kumanjai Walker, it's that shot which is critical. And because of that, the footage of those seconds was kind of raked over. And it was about, you know, essentially whether when you watch that body-worn camera footage of Zachary Rolf, you know, what do you see? Do you see a police officer doing his job or do you see a murderer? Next, the key moments of the trial and the family of Kumanjai on what needs to change. Right, so what was the key evidence that they relied on to back up each of these arguments at the trial? Yeah, so from the prosecution's standpoint, they discussed at length what was known as the axe incident that occurred on 6 November and that we mentioned earlier. So that was when two local police based in Yendamu, Senior Constable First Class Christopher Hand and Senior Constable Lanyon Smith entered a house known as 577 which is where Walker's partner, Rakesha Robertson, lived with her family and where Walker often stayed. So again, what happened in that attempted arrest was caught on police body-worn camera footage. They found Walker. After we handcuff you. They tell him he's going to be arrested. And Kumanjai comes at them with a small axe and basically chases those officers out of the room and then out of the house. Go, go, Chris. Go, Chris. Drops the axe on the front porch and flees. Get going. As we've mentioned, multiple people after that incident who were close to Walker told him, you've got to hand yourself in. And Luana Williams... Walker's aunt said that he actually visited her after that and told her he did want to hand himself in after the funeral. And Walker also denied to her any involvement in any of those break-ins in Yendamu. Right, so here we have a separate earlier arrest attempt where local police are threatened by Kumanjai, but with a very different result. Everyone walks away unharmed. What do we hear about the decisions the local police made during that arrest? Yeah, well, the local police gave evidence about how they believe their style of policing is very different in Aboriginal communities. Hand said that he always likes to be as non-violent as he can with arrests because we have to live in those areas, in those communities, and we're trying to build partnerships. And We're only trying to do our job, bloody, you know that. Like... I was supposed to sleep inside. Mm. At around that time of the arrest, 
hand actually spoke to Lottie Robertson, Rakesh's grandmother, and warned her. So this next time he does that, he might he might get shot. In Alice Springs, like community policemen are different to town policemen. And he clarified that what he meant was that other police officers, for example, those in Alice Springs, might approach that situation that had occurred with the axe very differently to the way he and his partner had. Mm. And Smith, who was the other officer involved in that axe incident, gave evidence that he didn't even consider drawing his weapon. And he said that was because of a combination of factors, including that he knew Kumajai Walker, he'd dealt with him before, and that there were other people in the house that you know, he was worried he was going to hurt if he'd you know, pulled his gun out of his holster. Mm. And he also said that despite Kumanjai charging at him with an axe, he never thought he'd be harmed. And this was partly because of his experience with Walpuri men who often use a show of force as a demonstration to their families that they can protect them. And, you know, he thought that that axe was more of an intimidation to get out of the room. He just wanted to get away. Why is this moment, the axe incident, so significant to both the defence and the prosecution? Why was it brought up, Nina? The defence basically said, have a look at this guy. Look how dangerous he can be when police try and arrest him. And he's got a violent disposition. It manifested itself as the aggressor, not only in that context, but when he stabbed Rolf. Mm. And it left Constable Rolf with little choice but to defend himself and Iberl during the shooting. Mm. But what the prosecution said was that the axe incident was the moment that Constable Rolf started to develop what they described as an obsession with arresting Kumajai Walker, that he watched the footage of that incident multiple times and that, you know, in their words, that he became fixated on going to arrest a man who he considered to be violent. Rolf said that when he watched that video of Walker, he did come to the conclusion that he was extremely violent and had the potential to use lethal weapons against police. You know, Rolf denied that he had become fixated or was obsessed on trying to arrest Walker and he actually said, look, I was completely indifferent about the prospect of even being deployed to Yendamu. But he was deployed. What other arguments did the prosecution put forward that Rolf was really obsessed and intent on arresting Kumanjai? There was quite a lot of evidence given about what was known as the operational plan, which was a document that Sergeant Julie Frost, who was in charge of the police station in Yandamu, put together to send to Rolf and his colleagues who were being deployed and to some of their superiors about what they were actually supposed to be doing when they came to Yendamu on the night of 9th November. Mm. So what the prosecution said was that in that plan, there was a clear, safe way that was articulated by Julie Frost for the arrest of Kumanjai Walker. And what that plan was, was that early the next morning, so at 5am on the 10th of November, so the day after the funeral, those officers were supposed to go and arrest Walker while he was sleeping. So effectively while he had you know, very little risk. And that as part of that plan, they were also going to involve a local policeman who knew Walker and would therefore be able to identify him. Mm. So Frost gave evidence that she had clearly articulated that plan to Rolf and his colleagues. But Rolf says that there was no such plan. He claims he didn't see the full email about it from Frost 
and that the plan wasn't articulated clearly to him in person either. And he says Frost actually said to him, by all means, go out and gather intelligence on where Kumajai Walker actually is, and if you come across him, then you should arrest him. Mm. But according to evidence given by Frost and the prosecution, the plan was never for all the police officers who had just arrived in town to head out, go to the house, find Walker and arrest him that night. Is that right? That's right. They, they say that was never the plan and the prosecution alleged that basically the fact that Rolf and his colleagues went immediately from the Yendamu police station to House 577, the house where the accident had occurred three days earlier. They say the fact that he went directly there with his colleagues showed that he had become obsessed with this notion of bringing to heel a, a violent offender. And so basically within 15 minutes of those officers leaving the Endemu station after being briefed by the local sergeant, the shooting occurred. Okay, so let's talk about the actual events of the shooting and I want to follow the prosecution's line of argument for a little bit longer. So what did they have to say about Rolf's actions inside that house? The prosecution witnesses, you know, there were 40 witnesses called and we heard time and again that police officers were permitted to use their firearm when an offender poses a threat to them or a colleague with an edged weapon, such as a pair of scissors. So I guess a lot of the evidence then kind of hinged on whether the threat posed by Walker when Rolf fired the second and third shots was a tangible threat and whether his response was reasonable. The prosecution and the defence both called expert witnesses with experience in the police force who essentially came to opposite conclusions about this specifically whether Rolf had acted in accordance with his training in firing the second and third shots and the level of danger that Kumanjai Walker posed once he was on the ground wrestling with Eberl. But, you know, the most important evidence of all this was from Rolf. Tell me about what Rolf said about the incident inside the house, about the shooting. So he clarified that he did not think at the time he shot Kumajai Walker for the second and third time that he himself was at any risk. But he said that he felt that Burl was in serious danger and, and could have potentially suffered a fatal stab wound in the fight with Kumajai Walker on the mattress. Mm. And, you know, he said some things in his evidence that sort of supported his idea. One of those was that, you know, shortly after he was stabbed by Walker, Rolf put his hand down onto his police block and noticed Kumajai's left hand was already on it. He said that Kumajai had put his hand on his gun. Yeah, he did. And, it, you know, he importantly kind of agreed later on in his evidence that he had never told anyone that either at the time within House 511 or even later back at the police station in Yendamu, saying that he didn't feel it was an important thing to tell them. Mm. And what Rolf also told the court was that as Burl and Walker were struggling on the mattress, he believed he saw Walker's right arm repeatedly stabbing a burl, who he knew he wasn't wearing body armour in the sort of chest and neck region. So, you know, he kind of clarified that he saw that. He later said that that's what he perceived and what he believed to have seen. But, you know, that was, that was quite a critical moment, not only because it was the first time we'd ever heard from Rolf his version of events, but because that's effectively what this case is about. Mm-hmm. what Rolf saw at the time he shot Kumajai a second and third time. Right, so Rolf reveals for the first time that 
he thought Kumanjaya put his hand on his gun and that he thought he had seen Kumanjaya stabbing Iberl. Did the prosecution press him on this? Absolutely. It, it was probably the most kind of fractious part of the entire trial when prosecutor Philip Strickland SC asked Rolf when these things had occurred. Where did we see these things happening on the body-worn camera footage? And Rolf basically agreed, yeah, look, you know, the footage doesn't show Walker's hand being on my gun and I don't think it shows Walker stabbing a burl. Mm. Now, I've got to keep in mind here the limitations of this body cam footage. They're chest-mounted cameras that don't necessarily capture everything that the person wearing that camera can see. And, for example, at some points in this footage, you can't even see the scissors Kumanjai Walker had. So the defence spent a lot of the trial kind of hammering home these limitations. But, you know, Strickland directly asked whether Walker had, had made this stuff up and that he'd made up that he believed Burl's life was in danger when he fired those final two shots. But Rolf denied this was the case. And, you know, to sort of, I guess, push that argument further, Philip Strickland played to the jury Rolf's own words from immediately after the shooting which can be heard in the body-worn camera footage, where he says, it's all good, he was stabbing you, he was stabbing me. And what Strickland said was that Rolf had used those words to justify what he had done, that he knew the shooting had been captured on body-worn cameras. And he said to Rolf, because Constable, you knew you had gone too far. Rolf, incorrect. You knew he'd been too gung-ho. Rolf, incorrect. Strickland then asked him, you know, how was the situation all good? And Rolf replied, a violent offender was trying to murder two police officers and he no longer was. Hmm. Okay, Nino, so with all of that in mind that you've just told us, what did the prosecution and the defence focus on in their closing statements? What kind of final thoughts did they leave the jury with? Yeah, so Strickland tried to tie all the evidence together by presenting to the jury the idea that Constable Zachary Rolfe had the state of mind and the mentality to arrest Kumajai Walker and shoot him if he resisted, and that he had lied about it to justify the unjustifiable. Mm. Now, what he actually said is that you know, Rolfe's career had demonstrated an obvious desire to become involved in what he said was direct action jobs, so jobs that had a high level of intensity and a high level of uh, danger. And, you know, that that included his five-year stint in the army, you know, his course with the private security company in the US, his application to join the SAS, and his additional training with the NT police's immediate response team. And he also emphasised to the jury that they should consider the context to Rolf confronting Walker in House 511. He said this included his alleged, you know, preoccupation with the axe incident, his keenness to be deployed to Yendamu, his insistence upon leaving the Yendamu police station that night that he was going to immediately track down Walker. So Strickland said that all this evidence went to the mentality that Constable Zachary Rolfe had, that if Kumanjai showed any resistance, if he presented with an edged weapon, Rolfe would be prepared to draw his gun and, if necessary, shoot Kumanjai Walker. Mm. Tell me about the closing statements by the defence. Edwardson said that Kumanjai Walker's death was a tragedy, but that he was effectively the author of his own misfortune and that the jury must not find Constable Rolfe guilty of his murder. He basically said, look, this is not a trial about a breach of general orders or 
you know, some sort of non-compliance with police procedure or poor tactical awareness. It's about what Rolf saw and heard and felt and perceived when he made that critical decision to pull the trigger for the second and third time. And he basically emphasised that the prosecution's suggestion that Rolf lied about Walker stabbing a burl were ridiculous suggestions. And to sort of, you know, kind of sum up all these things, he basically said, look, as tragic as it might be that a young man died as a consequence of his behaviour, in these circumstances, there can only be one verdict and that can only be not guilty of all charges. So, Nino, after five weeks of this trial, what were the key things that the jury had to weigh up and consider when deciding whether to convict? So before the jury went to consider their verdicts, they got what's known as the jury directions from Justice John Burns, and he basically told them that what the prosecution had to prove was that Rolf wasn't acting in self-defence and that, you know, in this context, it means the defence of another person, which, you know, meant a burl. They had to prove that Rolf's conduct was not reasonable in the circumstances for the performance of his duty as a police officer. Mm. And finally, they had to prove that the accused was not acting in good faith in exercising his duty or performing a function as a police officer. And Burns told the jurors that if they weren't convinced about the prosecution's case in relation to any of those three defences, then they had to find Rolf not guilty on all charges. Mm. And he said what kind of was a really key kind of point here, which is that the important question may well turn out to be what was the perception rather than the reality. What is he talking about here, perception versus reality? What he's emphasising here is that the jury shouldn't consider whether Rolf's actions were reasonable, not by the danger he'd actually faced, but by the danger that he perceived he faced. And he actually said, you know, in the present case, the accused perception of what was occurring is every bit as important as determining in hindsight what actually happened. And with that, the jury retired to consider its verdict. Tell me about what happened the day of the verdict. Almost exactly 24 hours after the jury had retired, but after only about seven hours of deliberations, the jury returned to a completely packed courtroom. And, you know, the foreperson was asked to say what the verdict was on those three charges, and they delivered a not guilty verdict on all three charges. When they delivered the last of the not guilty verdicts, you know, Rolf sort of stood up alone in, in the dock for a moment as, you know, the, his supporters in the court started to kind of hug each other and hug his lawyers. And then eventually he kind of moved back into the body of the courtroom and there was a huge group of people who had wanted to hug him and shake his hand, including his family members, his lawyers, his parents who had been there for every day of this five-week trial. The atmosphere in that courtroom kind of was almost jubilant on the Rolf side of the court, on the other side of the court, the side that had included the prosecution and elders from Walpuri and Kumajai Walker's family. They started to to filter outside and, and even while I was making my way out of the courtroom, you could already start to hear uh, their anguish about, about the verdict. Mm. Tell me about the scenes outside the court after the verdict was handed down. First outside court was Rolf, his lawyers and the police association. They all spoke 
briefly on the courtroom steps. Rolf was the first one to speak, and he, you know, made some very, very brief statements. Um, obviously, I think that was the right decision to make, but a lot of people are hurting today. Kumajal's family and his community, and didn't need to get to this point. So I'm going to leave this space for them. What were you thinking in, when you heard the verdict? He was asked about whether he would stay in the force. But he didn't respond. Constable Rolf, are you going to be returning to the police force, or do you want to? And then it was time for the family to speak. Today's not a very, it's not a really happy day for us. It's another sad day. Ned Jampachimpa Hargraves, a Walpuri elder, was in tears when he spoke outside court after the verdict. I just say, when? We are going to get justice. And he delivered a fairly strongly worded statement. No guns! No guns! That guns should be banned from remote communities. We don't want no guns! And while community members were speaking, they also referred to an Aboriginal man who is the same age as Kumajai, who was shot six times by police in Palmerston just south of Darwin only a few days earlier and remains in a critical condition. Look what happened during the trial. A young fella, same age as Kumanjai, was shot six times in Palmerston by police. This must stop. Another community member, Warren Williams, questioned why the jury contained no Aboriginal people. We wanted the jury to hear a story, the truth of what happened on that day. It was hard, it was hard for us to travel here. We thought we were coming to a neutral ground where we can have a multicultural jury instead of just non-Indigenous people. We felt that we were left out. Are we not part of Australia? Samara Fernandez-Brown, Walker's cousin, spoke last. We as a family and community remember him as a young man who loved animals, who loved his family, who loved his partner, his friends, his homelands, who loved music. He was a traditional young Aboriginal man who loved hunting and being out on country. He was a joyful young man who was generous, a young man who was taken far too soon, and a young man who would be deeply, deeply missed. So Nina, the family are setting out a few clear demands here, better representation on juries and no more guns in remote communities. I know that the lack of Indigenous representation on juries is a problem across the country and a complex one. But I'm wondering if any of these demands are being considered, as far as you know. There's been no comment specifically about the juries, but we know from other jurisdictions that there's issues with the data they keep about things like Indigenous representation. So that could be something that's a bit more of a longer-term problem to work through. But three days after the verdict, the NT Police Association President Paul McHugh did speak. 
What do you make of the calls to remove guns from remote communities? Yeah, we don't support that. Um, to be quite frank, our members uh, deserve to be safe in their workplace. Um, it is unfortunate that at times um, members of the community choose to attack police or other people, and police have a duty to serve and protect. And part of that is protect themselves and protect others. Are there any more avenues for answers for the family of Kumin Walker? The next step is going to be the coronial inquest. That's expected to start later this year, but it could run for many months and it's going to have, I'd imagine, quite a wide remit to look at all the issues leading up to the shooting, how the shooting incident itself unfolded, but also the aftermath of that. Mm. What we do know from what the family said outside court is that this process has already taken such a long time and they are desperate to know what can be done to prevent something like this happening again. But this is not the end of his story and this is not the end of our fight. After some rest, we will turn our attention to the coronial inquest where we hope our truth will finally be heard and so will questions that we have not had answers to to ensure that this doesn't happen to anybody else or any other family. Since this episode was recorded, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, June Oscar, has made a statement backing the Walkers family's calls to ban guns for police officers in Indigenous communities. Nino Bucci, who you heard in this episode, is a reporter for Guardian Australia. He covered the trial extensively, but I especially recommend his piece titled This Case is Tragic. Zachary Rolfe is cleared and an Aboriginal family left with answers. You should also read a piece by our Indigenous Affairs editor, Lorena Allam, that goes into more depth about the history of police violence in Yundamu, titled We Are All in So Much Pain. Kumanjo Walker family's call for end to police guns has a long history. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Laura Briley-Newton and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. Okay, catch you tomorrow. 